0: You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media.
1: So some years ago, I found myself as a young lieutenant at Fort Benning, Georgia. And I made a, a very good friend and a, another lieutenant, a fellow lieutenant from Burkina Faso. And uh, we had some time off one weekend. We had a long weekend. And and I asked him, I I said, we should go somewhere. We should go get to know someplace in this wonderful state, in this wonderful region. So how about the beach? No, no, he said, I I, I get bored at the beach. Well, how about the mountains? He said, no, no, we're, we're in infantry training. We've done enough mountains this week. Well, how about Atlanta? Atlanta's a very exciting city, lots of nightlife, two strapping young men like us, who knows? No, 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 not interested in Atlanta. I said, well, where do we go? He said, I want to go to one place. I want to go to Plains, Georgia. And I want to see the city, the town, the region, the place that produced this remarkable man, Jimmy Carter. I just texted him overnight, and he said that that remained one of the highlights of his time in the United States, along with a visit to NASA. So between (laughs) rockets and Jimmy Carter, I thought that was quite an extraordinary uh, testimony of the impact that Jimmy Carter has had Uh, globally, has had on so many people uh, around the world. It would have been nice if we could have all just convened uh, in Plains, Georgia, and held this event there, and been in the place again that that started this wonderful voyage of this this magnificent president of ours and this wonderful gift to humanity. But absent that, we're very flattered that the US Institute of Peace uh, has been honored with the ability to host this event today on the legacy of Jimmy Carter in promoting democracy and human rights in the hemisphere. My name is Keith Mines. I'm the Vice President for Latin America at USIP, which was established by the US Congress in 1984 as a national nonpartisan institute dedicated to helping prevent, mitigate, and resolve violent conflict abroad. The Lauda Commission, a study of a National Peace Academy, headed by Senator Matsunaga, a veteran of combat who wanted to America to have a monument and learning establishment dedicated to peace, was signed by President Jimmy Carter in 1979. President Carter was the recipient of the USIP Matsunaga Award along with President Reagan in 1994. The award cited President Carter's work on making human rights a cornerstone of his foreign policy, the Camp David Accords, and his later work as a mediator, election observer, and promoter of peace. So to my friend in Burkina Faso, who's joining us today, along with others in Haiti, I offer a hearty bonjour. To others in the hemisphere, buenas tardes, good afternoon, and boa tarde. We're very honored by your presence. I'd like to recognize OAS Secretary General Luis Almagro, a good friend of the Institute, State Department Deputy Assistant Secretary Enrique Roig, Congressman McCormick, former Vice President Navarro, Foreign Minister Alberto Van Claviden, and many other distinguished guests who have labored to bring President Carter's vision of a more just and democratic hemisphere into fruition. Many distinguished guests will join us on the panel today and will be introduced as they, um, as they arrive. I would also like to recognize the family of Judge Thomas Bergenthal and Pat Patricia Darien, champions of human rights, and to thank the many others joining us online. And I'd also like to thank the Carter Center for including us in this event, and the National Museum of American Diplomacy for the display of some of President Carter's memorabilia that you can see after the event on the veranda. And our other partners for the event, the Inter-American Dialogue, Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, Department of State, and the Organization of American States. Some 300 years ago, the French philosopher Denis Diderot pointed to contemporary writers who were too daring for the time in which their work appeared. They were not fully appreciated until a day when the age they they had outstripped had passed away and another century to which they really belonged in spirit overtook them at last and finally gave them the justice their merits deserve. Looking at the legacy of Jimmy Carter, one wonders if the world didn't need some decades to fully appreciate the message he had for us and the example he set. But it is still a challenging one, a discomforting one. It is not a call to complacency, but a call to action, to make the hemisphere a more just and equitable place where human dignity is at the forefront of the decisions of policymakers and the collective efforts of citizens. I'd like to now turn the podium over to Secretary General Almagro for his remarks, followed by Deputy Assistant Secretary Roig, and the program will proceed from there. Thank you.
2: <clears throat> Distinguished friends, dear minister, friends, colleagues, During his statement to the 10th General Assembly of the Organization of American States in 1980, United States President Jimmy Carter said, the cause of human rights will be at all the stronger if it remains at the service of humanity, rather than at the service of ideological or partisan ends. And if it condemns both terrorism and repression, in the phrase, human rights, the rights are important, the human is very important. This section of the phrase human rights has very bit of significance today as it did then. It is an honor to stand before you today to express my deepest admiration and appreciation for one of the greatest champion of democracy and human rights in the Americas. President Carter's tireless efforts in advancing democracy have left an indelible mark on the Americas. And ever since he first stepped foot through the doors of the Organization of American States in April 1977, his views have marked the institution. One of President Carter's enduring legacies will be the successful ratification of the Panama Canal Treaty signed between the United States and Panama at the OAS on September 7, 1977 which was an exhibition of cooperation between these two states that preserved peace and security in the Americas. Furthermore, his commitment to the values of the Inter-American Democratic Charter made him a beacon of hope for those fighting against oppressive regimes. And he remains committed to the democratic principles of freedom, justice, and equality for all in the Americas and beyond. His efforts through the Carter Center and my best regards to Ginny. Thank you very much for everything. Including his selfless and compassionate work with Habitat for Humanity has positively impacted the lives of millions. And his staunch advocacy for promoting free and fair elections, condemning human rights abuses, and supporting democratic and peaceful transitions in countries across the Americas. is why he was all too deserving of receiving the Nobel Peace Prize in 2002. In my meetings with President Carter, we always emphasize the importance of giving a voice to the voiceless and to respect the demands of the citizens seeking good governance and help them force a path away from authoritarianism and repressive systems of governance. No single individual has made so lasting an impact on so many nations in resolving conflicts and promoting peace. President Carter remains steadfast in his commitment to democracy and human rights, even in the face of adversity. He played a leading role in assisting democratic transitions. Venezuela, Nicaragua, Haiti, Panama, the Dominican Republic and Guyana. His mediation efforts in these countries demonstrated his deep understanding of the complexities of regional challenges and his solid commitment to peaceful resolution. His persistent pursuit of dialogue and ability to bridge divides have earned him the admiration and respect of global leaders and citizens alike. He firmly believes that the advancement of democracy and the protection of human rights are inextricably linked, understanding that a society cannot truly flourish unless all its citizens are granted the freedoms and opportunities they deserve. His legacy serves as a reminder of the power of principal leadership and enduring importance of the Inter-American Democratic Charter. We owe him a debt of gratitude for his lifelong pursuit of a more just and democratic Americas. For me personally, he's kind of a hero. His work during the Uruguayan dictatorship made a substantial difference for so many of our friends. His photo is in my office, and my visit to Plains, too, is maybe the highest moment of my tenure as Secretary General of the Organization of American States. Thank you very much.
3: I'm truly honored um, to join this distinguished group today. Respect for human rights and the need for strong democracies are issues about which I feel deeply passionate about. My own mother is from Chile, a country that endured the authoritarian regime of Augusto Pinochet. I know many of you here today have your own personal stories to share about the struggle to protect human rights and support democracy. For me, it meant pursuing a career working on these issues with President Carter as my beacon of hope that the United States could be a champion in pursuit of these ideals. Specifically, that idealism for me resulted in coming to Washington as a young 20-year-old and starting my career at a think-tank focused on Central America. It was there on my first international work trip that I met President Carter in Nicaragua in 1994 at a conference on Reflections on Democratic Transition. Looking back at that time now seems like another universe. Though what sticks out for me from that conference and throughout his life is President Carter's ability to bring people together to have difficult conversations and his commitment to pushing the envelope on the thorny issues even years after his presidency. For those of you here who know him much better, I know this doesn't come as a surprise to you. This has been part of his DNA forever. And his election in November 1976 placed human rights concerns at the highest levels of U.S. foreign policy, something no U.S. president had ever done. This made a difference in people's lives. President Carter has also reaffirmed throughout his long life the importance of the OAS, in promoting human rights and democracy. It was at the OAS in 1977 that President Carter signed the American Convention on Human Rights. He, along with First Lady Rosalind Carter, advocated regional support of its ratification so it could eventually come into force in July of 1978. In the place where I work now, the State Department's Bureau of Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor was created by President Carter to help advance individual liberty and democratic freedoms around the world under the leadership of our first Assistant Secretary of State for Human Rights and Humanitarian Affairs, Patricia Pat And It was during this time that the State Department's country reports on human rights practices came to play a key role in Carter's administration. President Carter and then Secretary of State Cyrus Vance declassified and publicized these reports, using them to inform policy decisions. Traditionally oppressed sectors welcomed these human rights reports, which they saw as part of America's support for democracy. President Carter also challenged the assumption that security assistance to repressive regimes furthered Cold War aims and instead adopted the view that particularly in the Southern Cone, U.S. support for these regimes had damaged its global leadership and made the U.S. complicit in human rights abuses. From 1977 to 1979, his administration cut military aid to Latin America from 210 million to 54 million, strategically voted no on international financial institutions' loans, and selectively blocked export-import bank financing. And let's not forget that Carter's threat just to suspend financing led the Argentine military junta to agree to the historic 1979 on-site visit of the Inter-American Commission, which produced incontrovertible evidence to the world of state-sponsored atrocities. Pat Darian returned in 1985 to testify in the historical trial of the juntas, the subject of last year's Oscar-nominated film Argentina 1985. At the time of Carter's presidency, he was also dealing with similar challenges as those we we face now. A lack of respect for democracy and human rights, backsliding in countries that had been strong democracies, a closing of civic space, migration, and racism and discrimination. Despite it all, President Carter continued to put human rights and democracy at the top of his regional agenda. And he was also keenly aware of the threats to national security and was as much a realist as he was an idealist. This approach didn't please everyone, as there were loud critics on both the left and the right. Though throughout it all, President Carter understood the correlation between issues such as mass migration, drug trafficking, and public health concerns with corruption, undermining of democratic institutions, and threats to civic space. And he recognized the need to address the root issue, weak democracies. Today, many of the past challenges persist in the Americas, while newer technologies such as commercially available spyware have added new risk of human rights abuse and privacy invasions. A major concern is dealing with mass migration humanely and in the context of rising global competition and democratic backsliding. Like President Carter, President Biden is profoundly committed to human rights within this global context and specifically to the Organization of American States. The U.S. remains deeply invested in the future of the OAS and the American system, We want to see them both thrive. We need to strengthen the OAS to advance governance that is not only democratic, but also effective and inclusive. And here in the year 2023, President Carter's legacy endures and calls us to act urgently on pressing human rights and democracy challenges. And as I'm learning in this new DRL role, that is not always easy. I often feel like I'm at a summer barbecue and I'm that wasp buzzing around someone's head, annoying them to no end talking about human rights. But then more WASPs show up and also start doing the same thing. That for me is the legacy that President Carter has left us, the the ability for many of us to buzz around and continually center US foreign policy on human rights. So on that final note, we're about to see a video of an excerpt of President Carter's 1978 speech recounting his seminal decision to center US foreign policy on human rights, a decision that has had positive, long-lasting effects around the world. Thank you very much.
4: What I have to say today is fundamentally very simple. It's something I've said many times, including my acceptance speech when I was nominated as president and my inaugural speech when I became president. But it cannot be said too often or too firmly nor too strongly. As long as I am president, the government of the United States will continue throughout the world to enhance human rights. No force on earth can separate us from that commitment. This week, we commemorate the 30th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. We rededicate ourselves in the words of Eleanor Roosevelt, who was a chairperson of the Human Rights Commission, to the Universal Declaration as, and I quote from her, a common standard of achievement for all peoples of all nations, quote. The Universal Declaration and the Human Rights Conventions that derive from it do not describe the world as it is. But these documents are very important nonetheless. They are a beacon, a guide to a future of personal security, political freedom, and social justice. For millions of people around the globe, that beacon is still quite distant. A glimmer of light on a dark horizon of deprivation and repression. The reports of Amnesty International, the International Commission of Jurists, the International League for Human Rights, and many other non-governmental human rights organizations amply document the practices and conditions that destroy the lives and the spirit of countless human beings. Political killings, tortures, arbitrary and prolonged detention without trial or without a charge, These are the cruelest and the ugliest of human rights violations. Of all human rights, the most basic is to be free of arbitrary violence. Whether that violence comes from governments, from terrorists, from criminals, or from self appointed messiahs operating under the cover of politics or religion. But governments, because of their power, which is so much greater than that of an individual, have a special responsibility. The first duty of a government is to protect its own citizens. And when government itself becomes a perpetrator of arbitrary violence against its citizens, it undermines its own legitimacy. There are other violations of the body and the spirit which are especially destructive of human life hunger, disease, poverty, are enemies of human potential which are as relentless as any repressive government. The American people want the actions of their government, our government, both to reduce human suffering and to increase human freedom. That's why with the help and encouragement of many of you in this room, I have sought to rekindle the beacon of human rights in American foreign policy. Over the last two years, we've tried to express these human concerns as our diplomats practice their craft and as our nation fulfills its own international obligations. We will speak out when individual rights are violated in other lands. The Universal Declaration means that no nation can draw the cloak of sovereignty over torture, disappearances, officially sanctioned bigotry or the destruction of freedom within its own borders. The message that is being delivered by all our representatives abroad, whether they are from the Department of State or Commerce or Agriculture or Defense or whatever, is that the policies regarding human rights count very much in the character of our own relations with other individual countries.
5: Well, that set the scene perfectly for our first panel. Uh, Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Margaret Myers. I direct what's called the Asia and Latin America program at the Inter-American Dialogue. It is such an honor uh, to be here and to uh, be able to celebrate uh, President Carter's legacy, Uh, also to be part of this important and, indeed, as we've mentioned several times over already, very timely uh, discussion and event. And then, as always, to work in very close partnership with the US Institute of Peace, uh, the US Permanent Mission to the OAS, the Department of State, uh, the Carter Center and the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. The Carter Center is also a favorite place of mine to visit, along with, of course, the Koch Museum and the many other things that that Atlanta has to offer. Um, Our first panel of the day will consider President Carter's impact on human rights policy and what we've learned from his approach and vision in the years that have followed. And I am very pleased to welcome an absolutely stellar group of speakers to provide some commentary on this issue. Uh, Commissioner Roberta Clark is currently serving as the second vice president and country rapporteur for the United States at the Inter-American Commission of Human Rights, uh, where she plays a crucial role in monitoring and addressing human rights issues within the region. Prior to joining the OAS, Commissioner Clark had an impressive career in the field of human rights advocacy, holding various key positions, including serving as regional gender advisor for the United Nations Development Program in the Caribbean region. Uh, Mark Schneider is a senior advisor with the America's Program at the Human Rights Initiative at CSIS. He served as the Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Human Rights and Humanitarian Affairs under President Carter and as Director of the Peace Corps, and Assistant Administrator of USAID for Latin America and the Caribbean. Uh, Juan Mendez is a professor of human rights law at American University's Washington College of Law, where he is faculty director of the anti-torture initiative. Mr. Mendez also served as the UN Special Rapporteur on torture and other cruel, inhumane, degrading treatment or punishment from 2010 to 2016. Prior to that, he was a member and then president of the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. He was additionally executive director of the Inter-American Human Rights Institute from 1996 to 1999. no, Oh, perfect timing. Uh, Mr. Tom Farrar has a distinguished career as a public servant, including as Special Assistant to the Assistant Secretary of State for Inter-American Affairs in the Carter Administration. He was later member and then president of the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. Uh, Tom is currently Professor of International Relations at the University of Denver, and we're so happy you were able to beam in. I hope you can hear us loud and clear, um, but that was indeed perfect timing. So we're thrilled to have this wonderful group of, of speakers, of commentators here with us to discuss this topic. Each will provide uh, some very brief opening remarks on the topic, and then we'll move into a shor- very short period of moderated Q and A. So, with that, um, let me turn it first to you, Commissioner. Sure.
6: Thank you very much, Margaret. Um, Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, As Commissioner and the rapporteur for the United States, I am really pleased to represent the Commission in this tribute to the legacy of the former U.S. President, um, Mr. Carter. I want to thank the US Institute of Peace, the Carter Center, and the Inter-American Dialogue, and the US Permanent Mission to the US for this invitation. I also extend my greetings and appreciation to everyone here. Across his life, uh, as we've heard already, President Carter has been a persistent and an insistent advocate for human rights. In my presentation today, I will focus on his contributions to the Inter-American human rights system in general and to the work of the Commission in particular. President Carter spoke of the importance of the inter-American human rights system on numerous occasions, noting that its existence is an achievement of which we all should be proud and whose integrity we should protect. He reaffirmed that states should not view the institutions of the inter-American system, the commission, and the court as a challenge or an offense to the legitimate authority of governments, but rather as a partner to promote and protect universal human rights and as an accountability mechanism established by the states themselves. As for the commission, he stressed the importance of preserving its independence from political pressures and safeguarding its autonomy. I would like to highlight a notable and enduring example of President Carter's leadership uh, and support for the commission's work. And I'm referring to the assistance provided by his administration to the historic visit to Argentina in 1979. I'm pretty sure Mr. Juan Mendez will also be speaking about that um, in greater depth. The report that came out of that uh, visit documented a systematic pattern of forced disappearances. The commission cited clandestine detention centers, met with dozens of detainees, and reported to the international community on the violations occurring in that country, and especially the forced disappearances, which were repeatedly denied by military authorities. The commission's intervention was key to saving the lives of many people who had been illegally detained and were in danger of being forcibly disappeared. I want to believe, and I think we, we all think, that the commission's visit was the result of the tireless work of victims' relatives and human rights organizations, human rights defenders, but also of the pressure exerted by the Carter administration. The U.S. State Department under Secretary for Human Rights, uh, Mrs. Patricia Derian, visited Argentina. We heard, um, we heard about that already th- this afternoon. And shortly thereafter, the U.S. Parliament Congress passed the Humphrey-Kennedy Amendment limiting arms sales and foreign aid to countries ruled by dictatorships. That visit, the visit of the commission, had an enormous impact on the Argentinian society and on the hemisphere and was one of the factors that contributed to the fall of that dictatorship. This represents but one example of the Carter administration's support for democratic transitions. I would also like to note that it was under President Carter's administration that the United States signed the American Convention on Human Rights the principal human rights instrument within the Inter-American system. While all members, based on the O.S. Charter, are subject to the the actions of the Commission, its statute, and the American Declaration on Human Rights, only those that have ratified the American Convention on Human Rights are obliged to respect the decisions and the judgments of the Inter-American Court on Human Rights and those who have accepted the jurisdiction under that convention. President Carter continued to promote US ratification of the convention throughout, uh, throughout his, 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 his public life, stressing that universal participation in our hemispheric human rights bodies would affirm and strengthen our democracy's commitment to the protection of human rights. And that is why today, more than 45 years after the signing of the convention by the United States, I want to take this opportunity to call on uh, the ratification of this and other important inter-American human rights instruments, thus honoring not only President Carter's legacy, but the historic commitment of the United States to the defense of human rights in our region. As a human rights defender myself, I take inspiration from his lifelong commitment to be a voice for the disempowered and an ally of historically marginalized groupings seeking justice and freedom in the United States and around the world. I also want to recognize his life and love partner in this work, Rosalind Carter. In an address in 1980, President Carter said this, and I quote, the desire for freedom and justice is the most powerful force in the lives of suffering people. We must recognize their plight, expose the human rights crimes, rescue victims from their oppressors, and let them join us in sharing the benefits of the rule of law that provide justice and lives of quality and peace. These are words to live by. These are our collective moral obligations. Um, let's all do it together. Thank you very much.
5: Thank you. Thank you so much for going on. Uh, Let's move on to Mark. Are we good? Feel free to, to sit or, or stand, whatever you like.
7: I'll
8: come over here. Uh, thank you very much. Um, my real appreciation for this goes beyond USIP and the OAS and the Carter Center. It goes to President Jimmy Carter. He and the those he named to the State Department, Secretary Cyrus Vance, Deputy Secretary Warren Christopher, gave me the opportunity to serve as the first principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of State in the first Bureau of Human Rights and Humanitarian Affairs. Uh, And it also gave me a chance to work with a truly remarkable woman, Patricia Darien. Pat had an unerring moral compass, and she had the determination and courage and skills to pursue that compass, come hell or high water. And over the course of the time that I was in the State Department I think it's important to recognize that what President Carter did was he formalized human rights as a fundamental element of US foreign policy. Prior to that on the hill you had Don Fraser, Ted Kennedy, others who introduced legislation and pushed human rights. It was bipartisan and it also represented non-governmental concern, the religious community and others that U.S. policy simply was not reflecting U.S. values and come out of the Civil Rights Movement, opposition to Vietnam, and the belief that any kind of support for military dictators was simply contrary to our interests and to our values. And what he did was he transformed that movement into a sustainable, element of U.S. foreign policy. Not the only goal of foreign policy, but a far, far higher priority than ever before. In Latin America, President Carter's message put the United States on the side of the victims of human rights abuse, not the government's. No longer would we be silent when there was torture, disappearances, extrajudicial executions. And that difference was felt in the region. Let me just give you some of the impacts. During that time period, the Carter administration was seen as supporting democratic change in countries like the Dominican Republic, Ecuador, Bolivia, and Peru after a decade or more of military and authoritarian rule. The United States ended its support for Samosa. Late, but it ended it. Brazil restored habeas corpus, loosened constraints on the press, And an amnesty was was issued to allow exiles to return home. Before the Carter administration, the United States simply was not seen as supporting democratic change in the region. Under Carter, it was, and that made all the difference. Just give me, let me give you two examples. The Deputy Secretary asked me to lead an investigation in El Salvador into reports of massacre in rural El Salvador. The government had blamed the massacre on leftists. The State Department delegation went there and found that the military itself had carried out the killings. And when we went back, the Carter, the, the Christopher committee ended all aid to El Salvador's government. And not just the region, but other parts of the world as well. And I, we may forget, but the victims of human rights abuse Those political prisoners I saw in Chile or welcomed here uh, after they were paroled into the United States, or the advocates that we helped escape assassination in Guatemala. They remember. And when they become, as they have, presidents or judges or ambassadors, they remember and it changes the way they view the United States. The difference between the Carter administration and the predecessors is most viscerally seen in the attitude towards Pinochet's Chile. In, in the last OAS General Assembly that Secretary Kissinger attended in Santiago, the declassified cables now show that he congratulated Pinochet for overthrowing the Allende regime, the Allende democratically elected government. Three months later, Orlando Letelier and his assistant, Ronnie Copper and Mar- Moffat, were assassinated in Washington, DC. The distinction was clear. The Carter administration treated Pinochet as a pariah, ended all aid, undertook an investigation that found that the Chilean secret police had carried out the Operation Condor, that carried out the assassination. We indicted the head of the Chilean secret uh, intelligence agency, Manuel Contreras, and six others. We convicted those who directly perpetrated the assassination. Carter's action and public condemnation of everything that Pinochet stood for was understood throughout the hemisphere, not just in Chile, as representing a seismic change in the attitude of the United States. And as you've heard, perhaps the strongest impact was here in terms of the regional institutional structure. And let me just say that when the, when the American Convention came into being, that also created the inter American Court for Human Rights, a fundamental change in the way that human rights is treated in the region. That Convention's Article 5, by the way, on the, the um, right to humane treatment was what was used then as a basis for delegates helping to create the International Convention Against the Use of Torture. In his farewell address, President Carter said, America did not invent human rights. In a very real sense, human rights invented America. That was what he believed, and that was his legacy. Thank you.
5: Thank you so much, Mark. Juan, could I invite you to make your remarks? Either there or here.
9: First, I want to thank the US Institute of Peace for this privilege, this uh, honor uh, of inviting me to speak on, on, on this occasion and with this great panel of, of, of speakers. Um, and I hope you don't mind if I start at least with uh, some personal remarks, uh, because I think many of the things that I could say are, are being said already and will be said by others. But I can't help but uh, remembering that in 1976, I spent the whole year as a political prisoner in Argentina without charges, and that that year was the height of the repression in Argentina with a campaign of disappearances uh, going in full force uh, through that year. And at the towards the end of the year, we had uh, a glimmer of hope with the election of Jimmy Carter to the presidency in the United States, because it was preceded by a campaign that very explicitly put human rights at the center of uh, US foreign policy. And in 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 that sense, uh, the 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 rest of the world, especially some European nations, also were emboldened to uh, you know uh, incorporate human rights as their concerns in dealing with military dictatorships and with other forms of repression uh, around the world. Um, the uh, But it was not just a campaign promise. In 1977, in I think it's November of 1977, Secretary of State Cyrus Vance went to Argentina and carried with him a list of 15,000 names of Argentine prisoners and disappeared persons uh, that had been compiled under very difficult circumstances. uh, But that uh, represented a way of asking the military dictators to account for uh, this, the fate and whereabouts of so many persons, and the reasons why so many uh, who, like me, uh, were saved from the phenomenon of disappearances, but we were held without uh, trial or accusation. Uh, sometimes, and in my case, it was only 18 months, but for most of the people I was staying with, it has been an average of far, four to five years, maybe even eight years. And it's not only that. Um, uh, Paderian uh, also visited uh, Argentina, I think, a year after that, and uh, demanded information about the fate uh, and whereabouts of Jacobo Timmerman, the, the the journalist who uh, later was recognized as being in prison and eventually uh, freed. And uh, and of course, uh, throughout the period, there was this uh, insistence on accounting for the disappeared, explaining uh, what had happened to so many uh, uh, Argentines, men and women, who were among the disappeared. Uh, as you know, that uh, concern uh, remained for the full time. Uh, the, 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 the State Department actually um, uh, announced a, a reduction of military aid to Argentina because there was no action in, um, uh, in uh, explaining what had happened to the disappeared. And the Argentine military uh, you know, huffing and puffing decided not to take any uh, military aid that year. Uh, but then c- uh, Congress, and particularly the Senate, um, uh, uh, issued the Humphrey Kennedy Act that has already been mentioned, and that conditionality uh, in my mind, was what allowed uh, the isolation of the Argentine dictatorship in, in uh, the rest of the world uh, and, and ultimately cut short uh, this nightmare of repression uh, that uh, had happened uh, in Argentina. And uh, let me uh, remind us all as well that the end of, this, of that particular military dictatorship, and unfortunately we had more than one, in the history but it was it inaugurated a period of more than 40 years now of democracy in Argentina so uh, all of those things uh, contribute uh, extensively uh, to uh, uh, you know isolating uh, military dictatorships um, and, uh, and and of course the democracies that uh, uh, are then Uh, Succeed those dictatorships are not necessarily um, uh, perfect democracies but uh, what I think is remarkable is that the citizens of uh, many of these countries um, have uh, uh, incorporated human rights in their domestic struggles as well and there's a a remarkable consensus even with different uh, uh, political identities in favor of human rights in the countries that were touched by the Carter Human rights policy uh, in those years um, i I want to uh, to mention also that um, that uh, sorry that uh, the, the, the work of human rights uh, you know was not uh, only limited to these uh, policy uh, mentions that I made. Uh, On a daily basis during those years, uh, the embassy, the State Department, reported on human rights violations very accurately and very positively, particularly uh, by the work of uh, someone many of us here remember very fondly, Tex Harris, who unfortunately has now departed us. But those years, I, I came to the States in 1977 and uh, I met Mark at the State Department almost immediately after arriving here, but I was also surprised to see how, how the, the doors were open in Congress, in the Senate, and especially in the State Department to um, uh, people coming from Argentina to seek support for human rights in Argentina in the darkest hours of repression. Emilio Mignone and Augusto Conte Macdonald, who I consider my mentors, but also the mothers and grandmothers of Plaza de Mayo, uh, would come here bringing uh, news and seeking support. And the the visit themselves created an umbrella of support for human rights defenders that otherwise would have made their life in uh, Argentina very, very dangerous and difficult. Uh, Obviously, there were others who. Uh, uh, not, not every human rights defender was successfully protected in Argentina at the time, or elsewhere in Latin America. But uh, the the fact that uh, the the United States was standing for human rights, uh, you know, cr- created the atmosphere for um, uh, uh, human rights uh, organizations and human rights defenders to do their work in the, in in this fashion. Um, and I was also uh, impressed by the fact uh, that uh, when, when, when they came to Washington uh, to explain what was happening in Argentina, they were also met by very sympathetic people uh, in, uh, in this uh, city uh, that were uh, willing to help open doors for them, uh, set up meetings, et cetera. And I, I, I want to recognize especially the Washington Office on of Latin America. And it's uh, a great pleasure to see its founder, Joe Eldridge, and Eric and Joy Olson uh, present today here. Because Waller is still around. Waller is still fighting the good fight for human rights. And uh, uh, even though uh, this, um, uh, there, there, there have been many years since uh, human rights was central to United States foreign policy, uh, but I was myself a beneficiary of that atmosphere that was created because, in my case my uh, an American family that campaigned for my for my release from Argentina uh, was able to get uh, letters uh, from Senator Ted Kennedy but also from Senator Percy, for example, and from Republican and Democratic uh, members of Congress alike. And it's sad to say that that's unthinkable now. Uh, it, just, it just wouldn't happen. Um, and uh, I just want to finish by saying that uh, the Carter administration did not create the human rights movement. Uh, the human rights movement had existed for a long time, but it, uh, it undoubtedly gave it a boost and a, a support that allowed the human rights movement to grow, and not, not only to grow in persons and in institutions, but also to grow and, uh, and become more effective and more efficient in uh, pursuing uh, the goals of human dignity for all men and women around the world. Thank you very much.
5: Thank you. We'll now move on to Tom Ferrer. Please go ahead and, and in uh, in order to leave, just a little bit of time for Q&A. If you could be brief, that would be terrific. Thank you very much.
7: Thank you. Since my encomium to President Carter is not unalloyed, I'd like to preface my remarks on the theme of this panel, by saying that on the basis of President Carter's performance in the years after he left office, and on the basis of a long private conversation that I and a number of other international lawyers had with him at the time of the founding of the of the Carter uh, Center in, in, in Atlanta, uh, I think that it's fair to characterize him as the most genuinely moral, most authentic believer in the rights of human beings since President Lincoln. He has no rival, it seems to me, in his in his humility and in his his genuine moral uh, sympathy and empathy. His term in office coincided with my first term as a member of the OAS Human Rights Commission. In fact, I was not nominated by the Carter administration. I was nominated by the Ford administration, but actually began work at the same time as Carter entered the White House. And Those four years that he was in the White House represented the high tide of the impact of the commission on developments in Latin America. Uh, And that was not accidental for all the reasons that that Mark and Juan have have, uh, expressed. We would never have been able to enter Argentina and conduct the 17 day on site investigation, which then led to the 350 page report, which I delivered at the next meeting of the OAS General Assembly, which I think began the process of unraveling the military regime, which led ultimately, as Juan pointed out, to the election of a to a democratic election. And we certainly would not have been allowed by the Somoza government in Nicaragua, the Somoza dictatorship, to enter the country in the middle of the civil war between Somoza's personal army, the National Guard and the Sandinista led uh, rebels were it not for pressure from the White House. And that was really the high tide of the commission in terms of actual consequences. It was striking that when Somoza resigned and fled to the United States and was asked why he had resigned since he hadn't lost militarily at that point, hadn't lost yet, he said that one of the two reasons was the report of the Inter-American Commission. But just as that represented the high tide of the Commission's work that is the most concrete resolution of its exposure of the behavior of a brutal dictatorial government, in a way, it also represented the low side of the Carter administration's work in the human rights field in Latin America because the United States had the power at that point in its history and in the history of the hemisphere to serve as the arbiter of a new order in Nicaragua, an order that would involve the removal of Somoza and the creation of a government, mixing elements of the conservative business community, and the radicalized students and others who had formed the Sandinista movement. And because of the president's refusal to exercise, the power of the United States to force the earlier resignation of Somoza and then to manage the creation of a hybrid regime. When Somoza left, the National Guard collapsed. And the military field was left to the Sandinistas alone. The Sandinistas never expected to govern Nicaragua by themselves. And the United States could have integrated the Sandinista movement with the other elements in Nicaraguan society. And because the president was unwilling, for reasons we can explore in the brief discussion that we have time for, was unwilling to use the full power of the United States to arrange, to to mediate, and if necessary, to arbitrate the creation of a new order in Nicaragua. What followed was the Second Civil War, the Contra War. And ultimately, and ironically, the emergence of a dictatorship in Nicaragua, led by one of the former Sandinista commandantes, which is as brutal and kleptocratic as the Somoza regime. So this was a this was a tactical failure, but it it reflected a certain view of how the United States should conduct its support for human rights, which. Was partially flawed. So, in order to leave some time for discussion, I'm going to stop there, but only reiterating that there's no American li- living American president I admire other than Jimmy Carter. And he's a great man, even if he made serious mistakes as a president.
5: Thank you so much, Tom, for that. Um, we have uh, approximately two and a half minutes left for our discussion, so let me just pose two two questions and ask you to respond to one um, in forty five seconds if at all possible. I understand that's a very 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 big ask uh, perhaps for um, for professor mendez and and commissioner um, you know how would you Identify or, or describe the evolution of, of of U.S. human rights policy since the Carter years, and what key elements remain, what key elements might be fortified, how have things changed, and what do you recommend in that respect? And then finally, and then uh, maybe for 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 Mark Schneider and Tom. Um, Farrar, what, what were the main obstacles uh, faced by the Carter administration in promoting human rights in Latin America? Uh, how can these experiences guide policy members? And maybe you know, more specifically, how did Carter institutionalize human rights and related mechanisms within the State Department? And I understand those are all multifaceted questions. But please, any element of that you'd like to comment on, please go ahead. And we can go ahead and start with you, Mar.
8: Um, thank you. Uh, What's interesting is that what President Carter essentially did was he made the State Department incorporate into the way it did business the issue of human rights. By executive order he created the Interagency Commission on Human Rights and Foreign Policy that Christopher, Warren Christopher, led and that considered all aid to any country that the Human Rights Bureau said had human rights issues. And so they were considered in that venue. Um, And in fact, it also was a way in which we incorporated the reports from groups like WOLA and other organizations into the information we brought to that committee. The other is that every bureau in the State Department was directed to name a human rights officer who was in that bureau. Every embassy in the region had a human rights officer designated within the embassy all of which still continues in different ways. And it also, what the Carter administration did was it put the Human Rights Bureau at a corner office on the seventh floor. And that said something within the State Department.
5: Thank you so much. Tom, anything to add to that or expand upon?
7: What President Carter was perhaps unable perhaps unwilling to state, to articulate, was that the problem in much of Latin America, certainly in Central America, was not simply the absence of democracy, or not even fundamentally the absence of democracy, but profound inequities, structural inequities in the societies. These are more feudal societies than modern societies, and that without Radical change that's caught without white revolutions as opposed to red revolutions, these societies might, contain, might hold elections. They might be fair elections, but the societies would not change fundamentally, and they haven't.
5: Thank you so much. Uh, Professor Mendez, anything to add on either point?
9: Uh, Yeah, The good thing was that um, the uh, human rights policy, as part of foreign policy, did not die right after uh, the defeat of President Carter, because even though the new Secretary of State said that human rights would be uh, at the bottom of the agenda, or something to that effect, in uh, the Reagan administration's foreign policy, in fact, the conditionality and the and the concern of Congress and and the Senate remained for several years, and forced sometimes even the Reagan administration to do sometimes the right thing on human rights grounds and recognizing that its allies uh, had to be called for for human rights violations. Unfortunately, over the, over time, uh, the, this uh, 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 the erosion did happen and. Um, you know, for example, the, the the human rights reports of the State Department that were so useful for many years after the Carter administration uh, nowadays don't even—I uh, don't know if they're still published—but if they are published, they don't gather a whole lot of attention anymore. Uh, but the, the the civil society movements that uh, that uh, you know uh, use that opportunity. Um, still do very good reporting and very good coverage of human rights violations, and still ask uh, you know, US government, but also other democratic governments to incorporate concerns about human rights uh, in their foreign policy. Um, I also think that it was very important, as it was said before, to, that the, administ- the Carter administration signed the American Convention on Human Rights and submitted it to The Senate uh, failed to ratify it, unfortunately, Uh, and then in the Clinton administration, it was submitted again for ratification, and again, it failed, and it's a real pity that the United States is not a party to the American Convention on Human Rights, Uh, but uh, the Reagan administration did sign and ratify the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, the, um, the Convention Against Torture, and the Convention Against Genocide. Um, which are important, uh, you know, not not the only pieces, but important pieces in the uh, human rights framework. Um, I also, uh, I, I well, uh, I'm sorry, I'm taking t- uh, too long. But
5: uh, if you if you have a final point, that's or <laughs> right, we could end. Any any any. Final remarks?
6: Yeah, thank you very much. I think, I mean, the ideological and the partisan polarization in this country and in countries all over the world is so extreme, it's hard to think about what that straight line is from the Carter administration to now. But what I want to to maybe end by saying is that I think um, his legacy is his life his commitment to service, and it's not an apolitical service, it's a deeply political service in the sense that he understood power inequalities and he used his voice to point those power inequalities out after he left the White House and he's continued to do that across his life and he was a person ahead of his time. He saw the interconnectedness of things, the environment, poverty, uh, civil and political liberties, democracy, he saw all of that and he worked for that in his years after leaving the White House
5: certainly well ahead of his time in so many different ways. Well, what a fascinating, thought-provoking, and indeed, again, very timely discussion. Uh, Please join me in in, in thanking our excellent panelists for this session. And I'll I'll invite the panelists to walk off stage, right? It is my pleasure to it's my pleasure to welcome um, now ambassador Juan Gabriel Valdez former Chilean minister and ambassador to the US and the United Nations to provide some brief remarks on the fight for human rights and transition to democracy in Chile ambassador welcome to the stage
10: thank you very much first of all for to the Institute the. US Institute of Peace for having me today I hope that the, that you will excuse the personal character of most of my remarks. This year is the 50th anniversary of the military coup in Chile, the death of Salvador Allende, and the end of a long democracy, and the initiation of the dictatorship that lasted 17 years. Chileans have two ways of recalling the relationship between the United States and the tragic collapse of Chilean democracy. One is to remember Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger their participation in the disastrous light of Chilean democracy towards its terrible end, and the support they gave to a military regime that became a world symbol of the violation of human rights. The other is to remember the breath of fresh air, decency, and human rights principle President Jimmy Carter brought with him to the White House, and the space he opened in our countries of South America for the defense of our essential rights, and the creation of a political opposition representing a new hope of democracy and freedom. I do not need to say which is the memory of the United States that we prefer. I remember very well an evening in Washington, D.C., in our apartment in McLean Gardens in October '76. I was at home listening to the debate between presidential candidate Jimmy Carter and Gerald Ford, and then suddenly Carter said, and I quote One of the primary reasons of the deep hurt that's come to this country has been the military coup in Chile. It seemed to me a miracle. I couldn't believe my ears. He was mentioning Chile. It is obviously un-American to interfere in the free political processes of another nation. It is also un-American to engage in assassinations in times of peace in any country, he said some days later. Also referring to Chile. And then in his inauguration speech he proclaimed our commitment to human rights must be absolute. Because we are free, we can never be indifferent to the fate of freedom elsewhere. He was referring to Latin America. It seemed unbelievable. Mind you, this was happening only a few months after Pinochet's agents had assassinated Orlando Letelier and Ronnie Moffitt in Sheridan Circle. In that moment we, Their Chilean friends and companions, Orlando co-exiles, were at the lowest ebb of our hopes. We felt threatened and insecure in this country. We had heard Orlando saying, they will never dare to kill me in the United States. And there we were, carrying his coffin out of St. Matthew's Cathedral. Surely we had friends in this country. Thousands of friends, Chile and its disgrace, had been the moving force for the surge of an American human rights movement that extended all over the country. A movement conformed by friends we admired, people that were dedicated, dedicating their lives to our cause. We felt their support and protection. We rightly saw organizations like WOLA and the National Council of Churches as a home and as a heaven. We also admire and were grateful for the friendship and support we received from extraordinary figures in Congress. Senator Ted Kennedy had been the first to raise his voice in defense of human rights in Chile. Senators Aburquez, Church, McGovern, Senator Mondale, and then Congressman Tom Harkin, George Miller, Donald Fraser, and Toby Moffitt, among others, had organized hearings in Congress, had traveled to Chile, and had denounced the brutality of torture and disappearances the fear, the repression, the lack of freedom existing in the country. We trusted them. They listened to us. But we also knew that the government of the United States fully supported the dictatorship. We knew it because during that same terrible year of 1976, in July, Chile had been chosen as the site of the General Assembly of the Organization of American States. Secretary Kissinger has traveled to Santiago and had met Pinochet. Our friends in the movement, and all of us in Washington and elsewhere, where the Chileans were organized, rightly suspected that whatever his references to human rights as the OAS, in the OAS assembly, Kissinger's mission was to tell the dictator he could count on the support of the White House. Many years later, we confirmed it, and I have to confess that each time I read the transcript, I find it more appalling. I quote, we want, to help not, we want to help not to undermine you, said Kissinger to Pinochet. We are very sympathetic with what you are trying to do here. You did a great service to the West in overthrowing Allende. The pictures and the text show an amiable and affable Secretary of State. Stern and dark, Pinochet listens in silence, and when Kissinger finishes, remains in silence for a second and then utters just one phrase. Yes, but Valdez and Letelier continue to have great access to Congress. He leaves the idea floating for some second. Kissinger seems taken aback. Orlando Letelier was killed in September. Gabriel Valdez, my father, then at the United Nations, was placed under FBI protection for a year. You can see now why. Jimmy Carter's ideas and his electoral victory seemed to us a miracle. It was not simply a change in government. It was much more than that. It was not simply a change in foreign policy. It was much more than that. The United States seemed to us to have changed its identity. This was once again the country of democracy and freedom. And to us, the deep values of solidarity and peace of respect for diversity and democracy, expressed by the Solidarity Movement, which had made us Chileans admire and love this country, now would be reflected in the government in Washington. Far from our feelings of happiness, the dictatorship felt it was in deep trouble Only two weeks after the elections, Pinochet announced his decision to free 302 political prisoners and issued some decrees, easing all the limitations on relegados, political leaders in internal exile. The dictatorship, its civilians supported, ideologues, and its press had realized that something really important had happened. The United States would not accept anymore the argument that somebody could be killed with impunity because he was a communist or a socialist. At the same time, the internal actors in defense of human rights were strengthened in their work. Harassment against the Catholic Church, its Vicaria de la Solidaridad, and the lawyers defending prisoners decreased. In Washington, Mary McRory, a journalist with sympathies to the Chilean cause, wrote, he, Carter, has had a rather dazzling demonstration of how he can make tyrants quake. The question is, will he require them to do more? Now, 47 years later, I understand the internal tensions that the Carter administration had to face when balancing its two principles in Latin America, the defense of human rights, and at the same time, the respect for the sovereignty of the nations of Latin America. What could be done to induce the military to reestablish civic freedoms? How could a priority for human rights be expressed without the appearance of intervention and destabilization? Chile was undoubtedly the most difficult case. As my friend the late Robert Pastor once wrote, while other US interests clearly must be considered in evolving policy options for Chile, none can take precedence over our human rights considerations. I remember the time we heard about internal debates in the administration. Pat Darian, whom we admired, Mark Schneider, our friend of a whole life, Robert Pastor, didn't have necessarily the same views on these matters. And of course, we, the Friends of Orlando, sided with those who wished for the application of the most drastic measures, particularly in reference to the Letelier assassination. In one year, the government, the American government investigation of the crime had made significant advances. advances. The assassins were identified and indicted. Requests for extradition of the principal perpetrators were sent to Chile. As we confirmed much later, the CIA had evidence of Pinochet's direct participation in ordering the murders. The Supreme Court of Chile, the judiciary system of the regime, denied the extradition requests. Only one extradition was considered, was that of an American national working for the regime's police. As always, the regime played the game of showing openness and conceding more freedoms. The terrorist security organization called DINA was dissolved, and Pinochet decided to form another police organization under a different command. The U.S. government decided to apply sanctions, including terminating all military sales, and the Exim Bank would suspend its operations in Chile. Most people in Congress and in the movement thought that that was not enough. When looking at the past, These debates of the 70s do not seem as important as probably they seemed then. What is remarkable is that the relevance the Carter administration conceded to our region and the centrality of human rights, particularly in South America, did not change later, or better said, could not be changed during other administrations like the one of Ronald Reagan. With the extraordinary change Jimmy Carter introduced in American foreign policy, as well as in the image of the United States, both in the hemisphere and in the world, the president opened the spaces needed by those Latin Americans, and in our case, by those Chilean leaders who had had the principles of human rights engraved as the essential doctrine of their concept of democracy. In political terms, this meant that military dictatorship had to wane. And democratic alternatives had to be allowed to organize and come to elections. The extraordinary extraordinary impulse Carter gave to the concept of human rights undoubtedly created the first draft for the possibility of democratic transition in Chile. I should add, for a democratic and peaceful transition in Chile. One last personal remembrance. In 1984, I went along with my father to President Carter's home in Plains, Georgia. My father was then the leader of the opposition, and he had been in jail the previous year. We had lunch with President Carter, his extraordinary wife, Rosalind, and Bob Pastor in a very simple and family environment. It was the conversation of two leaders who did not need much to realize they had the same values and the same hopes for our countries. We were impressed by Carter's simplicity, naturalness, and straightforwardness. That was the first time that I had the honor of visiting his home. I have been there four times by now. But of all these times I have been in Plains, this will be the one I will always remember the most. I finish this word saying that Chile continues to pay homage to President Carter. Today, our President Gabriel Boric, a 36-year-old member of a new generation of Latin American political leaders, has given proof of his courage and honesty in putting human rights at the center of his foreign policy. He could also say, as Carter did in his inaugural address, our commitment to human rights must be absolute. Because we are free, we can never be indifferent to the fate of freedom elsewhere. Thank you very much.
5: Thank you so much, Ambassador, for that fascinating and and moving account. Um, I am now pleased to introduce another short video produced by the Carter Center for this special occasion, which provides a brief overview of the origins of the Carter Center's Latin America and Caribbean program and its mission to support democracy in the Americas, highlighting one of their earliest projects, an election observation mission in Panama in 1989.
0: The countries in Latin America and the Caribbean are our neighbors in the hemisphere. When they suffer, we suffer. When they prosper, we prosper. When there's stability in our neighborhood, there's stability for the United States. I'm Jenny Lincoln, Director of the Latin American Caribbean Program at the Carter Center. The mission of the Latin American Caribbean Program is to support democracy in this hemisphere. And one of the very first projects was an election observation in Panama in 1989, which put the Carter Center on the map for electoral observation. And President Carter stood up to Manuel Antonio Noriega and called the election a fraud, and that was a dramatic, dramatic moment.
4: I examined the documents myself in the presence of the election officials. They were patently counterfeit. They had nothing to do with the actual documents that we had seen prepared the night before.
0: Since then, there have been efforts to use this convening power of the Carter Center to bring together groups that have been in conflict, whether it has been political contention around elections or around different reforms. Recently, we've been working in Colombia. At the end of 2016, the government of Colombia and the warring factions FARC signed a peace accord to end a 52-year civil war. The Carter Center has been very active in helping with the implementation of this accord and was actually named by the negotiating parties as an institution chosen to help with this effort. The Carter Center has a long history, as does President Carter, with interest in Nicaragua and now we've just undertaken a project to support political electoral institutional strengthening, not just voting, but also encouraging people, and especially young people and women, to participate, to be candidates, to put themselves out, to be part of the democratic process. So it's very important to have a solidarity in this hemisphere, and that's why it's important for us to maintain this close relationship with our neighbors to the south.
5: Well, many thanks to the, the Carter Center for producing that video. Our second panel of and final panel of, of the day, of the event, uh, is forward-looking. We'll consider the various means by which we can carry forward Carter's vision for inclusive democracy, addressing, frankly, what is a growing lack of trust in democratic institutions, not only in the Americas, but, but globally. Uh, three new esteemed panelists join me for this discussion. Uh, Samuel Luis Navarro is a prominent businessman but has also made notable contributions to Panama's diplomatic landscape as Special Ambassador of Panama and as a member of the Advisory Committee of the Panama Canal, the National Council on Foreign Affairs, and the Board of Directors of the Panama Canal Authority. He then, of course, later became first Vice President and former Minister of Panama. Uh, Secretary uh, Mari Carmen Plata is the Secretary for Access to Rights and Equity at the OAS. she led the OAS electoral observation mission in 2021 to St. Lucia. She formerly worked on civil society and private sector engagement on public policies with a focus on gender equity and women's leadership and representation in government and regulator- regulated boards. She has also been involved in academic projects for the study and promotion of human rights and was recognized by Chamber's Diversity and Inclusion as as a highly commended, excuse me, attorney for Central America. And then, of course, Dr. Jenny Lincoln has been the Carter Center's principal advisor for Latin America and the Caribbean since 2015. She has also been a credentialed international observer in 23 elections in Latin America, including five with President Carter and two with the Organization of American States. We'll run this panel, just as we did the first, and I'll uh, hand the floor first to, to Samuel.
11: Thank you, and uh, thanks to everyone, USIP and uh, everyone else, for allowing me to participate in this event where we recognize the legacy of one of the great statesmen of our times. I consider myself a very privileged person. One of the things that make me so privileged has been a deep and abiding friendship with President Carter and the Carter family. I first met President Carter in early 1977, as my father, Gabriel Luis Galindo, was having, have have been being uh, appointed. Panama's ambassador to the United States was presenting his diplomatic credentials. An event that should have been a quick protocolary photo op. However, characteristic of President Carter's personality, it became an immediate working session calling the National Security Advisor and all his staff to the Oval Office in order to tackle the Panama Canal issue right away. What struck me the most in that occasion was his sense of decency, commitment to doing the right things based on deep-rooted values. For the purpose of this discussion, it might be difficult for me to be objective because, as Jenny, and others in this room, I'm sure know I cannot separate my personal feelings uh, of friendship with Jimmy Carter. However, looking at the Americas today, it is frankly painful to observe the serious challenges to democracy across the region. It is distressing to witness the democratic backsliding that has occurred in a number of countries, the weakening of democratic institutions, the polls that indicate a softening of citizen support for democracy, the cheapening of political discourse, the blatant disregard for human rights and civil liberties, and the rise of authoritarianism are just everyday events in our hemisphere. In that scenario, I believe it is important not just to reflect on President Carter's many achievements, but also, and perhaps more important, to see how we might use his legacy to renew a collective commitment to democracy. The the thing is that when Jimmy Carter took office in 1977, the situation in the Americas was even worse than today, with only a handful of real democracies in place. At the end of his term, In just four years, democracies flourished in every country except one. This is a lesson that with the unwavering commitment for democracy and human rights of the leaders, it can be done. In the case of Jimmy Carter, this commitment was not only present during his term in office, but even stronger in his post-presidential work. Through the Carter Center, he became the most recognized voice in the region for fair and clean elections with all the efforts of, of, for observation in many countries. Many cases come to mind and some of them have been mentioned here, but in my case, there was no more clear commitment that that displayed in Panama in 1989, where at the risk of his own security, He denounced the blatant efforts by the Noriega regime to overturn the results of that election. He took principled stands to assure the integrity of other elections, including Nicaragua, Haiti, and Guyana. And in doing the right thing, there is no clearer example than the Panama Canal treaties. Since the original treaties for the construction of the Panama Canal in 1903 Every generation of Panamanians had been fighting to recover full sovereign rights over our territory. More than 70 years later, Jimmy Carter saw that and moved forward at great political cost. This was a clear way to see the political courage of the man. As you know, the passage of those treaties was an uphill battle and they passed by only one vote in the U.S. Senate. Today, the Panama Canal represents a major strategic asset to the United States in the hands of Panama. More than 6 percent of all seaborne trade in the world goes through the Panama Canal every year, and about 65 percent of all ships that go through are either coming or going to to a U.S. port. In conclusion, As we look around the hemisphere today and witness the deterioration of democratic institutions, I think it's time to recover the democratic values and the human rights spirit of Jimmy Carter. The spirit that led him to lead dozens of election observation missions all over the world. The spirit to never shy away from the hard work of building democratic institutions, and that is the spirit of the man to whom we pay honor here today. Thank you very much.
5: Thank you. Thank you for those excellent remarks. Uh, Dr. Lincoln?
0: Thank you so much to USIP for hosting us today and for our partners that have joined with the Carter Center to provide a tremendous commemoration of the life and legend of Jimmy Carter. I want to especially be able to share with you that today the, the Carter Center, the family, uh, the family of the Carters, are following this commemoration. The, the yesterday, the Organization of American States gave a, a tremendous declaration of appreciation for the life and legacy of President Carter in the Americas. Given President Carter and Mrs. Carter's personal interest in the region, it's particularly meaningful for them and certainly for the Carter Center to see this outpouring of appreciation for their work. Your presence here and online is a gift to them in appreciation for that work. And for all of that, I thank you. When President Carter left the White House in 1981, he was 56 years old. He and Mrs. Carter were determined to continue their public service. They were a team, and they founded the Carter Center We've heard a lot about the Carter administration and the legacy of his politics and policy and official policy ways. And now I'd like to turn the attention to the Carter Center. The two of them founded the Carter Center in 1982. It was to be a non-governmental organization with the tagline, waging peace, fighting disease, and building hope. This short phrase is the, captures the essence of the mission of the Carter Center to support human rights defenders, to strengthen democracy, improve health, and engage in conflict resolution all over the world. President Carter's personal guiding principles laid the foundation for this non-govern, non-partisan, non-governmental organization. One is th- that is willing to take risks to take on the difficult problems, I would say, sometimes where angels fear to tread, one that is ready to work with partners, and his quote, to believe that people can improve their own lives when provided the necessary skills, knowledge, and access to resources. The Carter Center has become known in Latin America and the Caribbean for these activities and the personal attention and visits of President and Mrs. Carter. Some of the activities are well known, like the electoral observations. Other activities are the result of quiet diplomacy, such as seeking the release of wrongfully imprisoned citizens, or closed-door negotiations for conflict resolution. I know that some of you listening here know exactly where and when these were, but his priority was always to reach a positive outcome and not necessarily take the credit for it. President Carter has been a strong supporter of the Organization of American States for decades. As governor of Georgia, he hosted the General Assembly of the OAS in Atlanta. In 2004, he formed the group of the Friends of the Inter-American Democratic Charter, a group of former heads of state, cabinet ministers, and human rights defenders to support the charter and its principles in the region. In recent years, he saw the Columbia Peace Accord and a 52-year civil war and bring peace, more peace to the region. An example of where he pushed from behind the scenes with no needed fanfare. These thoughts bring me to a more personal side of this reflection on President Carter's legacy in the Americas. I was the Associate Director of Latin American Caribbean Program at the startup of the Carter Center with Robert Pastor, who is remembered by many of you in this room. I returned to the Carter Center in 2015, and I've had the opportunity to travel with him, be in meetings with him hear him as he approaches the good guys, the bad guys, the ugly ones, and to learn from him in action. Given that we are looking at his legacy for the significance of challenges for democracy and human rights today, I'd like to share a couple of lessons that I learned about him and from him that are very relevant today as we confront political polarization, disinformation, and democratic backsliding throughout the hemisphere. First, two things about him. As a boss, as a hefe, he set high expectations for everyone around him, but never expected more of anyone else than he expected of himself. Second, failure is an option. He would say that to staff, meaning you must always try. You might fail, but the emphasis is you must try. Take the risk. Things that, what I learned from him. One, negotiations are not a one-way street. Conflict resolution takes time, patience, communication, and a recognition that each side has interests, something to gain, and something to lose. Second, things are not always what they seem to be. Make sure that you are open to all information, including information that even seems contrary to logic. Third, know your principles and stand by them. These lessons are very relevant for today as we confront democracy at risk in the hemisphere. Jimmy Carter is known as a man of peace. It's opportune to review his legacy for approaches to current times. In January 2022, President Carter published a guest opinion piece in the New York Times in which he made a call for protecting democracy with these five warnings that are applicable today to the entire region. First, citizens may disagree on policies, but people of all political stripes must agree on fundamental constitutional principles and norms of fairness, civility, and respect for the rule of law. Citizens should be able to participate easily in transparent, safe, and secure electoral processes. Second, we must push for reforms that ensure the security and accessibility of our elections and ensure public confidence in the accuracy of the results. Third, we must resist polarization that is reshaping our identity around politics. And we must focus on core truths that we are all human and must resist the forces that divide us. Fourth, violence has no place in our politics. And lastly, the spread of disinformation, especially on social media, must be addressed. I joined the Carter Center the first time in 1989. While I was there then, we celebrated President Carter's 65th birthday. We had a party and he shared his Medicare card now years later the lessons the life that he has lived is still such a valuable guidance for us as we face the challenges with human rights and democracy in latin america thank you for the opportunity to share these reflections i'll remind you that president carter is 98 years old mrs carter will celebrate her 96th birthday in august and they still The life well lived, Roberta mentioned their their legacy is their life well lived. It's a lesson for all of us. Thank you.
5: Thank you so much, Jenny. (laughs) Secretary Plata.
12: Thank you, I guess my reflections on the legacy will be a little bit different. Um, I come from a family that was, the matriarch was a Mexican immigrant born and raised in Des Moines, Iowa, and a Panamanian, very nationalistic institutor. They moved to Panama in the 1950s. So you can imagine in December 31st, 1999, what almost a miracle, like Ambassador Valdez was mentioning before, it seemed to my family that that debate would finally rest as to what would happen with the canal, finally, and we've heard where we are with that today. I am not here to talk about the canal today. I joined the OAS, and in joining the OAS, I was informed that eventually, I would learn about electoral observation. And um, this is part of the legacy as well, I think, because once um, you are part of the electoral observation process, you understand the importance, all of the elements that go into building a democracy, more than the technical aspects, more than the day itself, which I think was very important to President Carter, probably because of his own experience, but just the environment, the place where you're going to, the people that you're talking with, the people you sit down with and wonder how much of their experience has built a trust in their local institutions, in their political structure, in their candidates. So in that regard, I have to say that Democracy, as we have mentioned here already, is facing very serious challenges, and very different from what they faced back in 1962 when the OAS started observing elections. We've since then observed around more than 300 elections in the region, and we are not indifferent and we're not alien to noticing the shift in what observation and elections are today. The risks that Dr. Lincoln has mentioned very well and that were expressed very clearly by President Carter in his article earlier is truly what now we have to reflect on and consider his legacy in building a new structure, in building institutions that collaboratively, as the work that we have done from the OS together with the Carter Center, can really make a difference in what we are facing today, how we can take that legacy and rebuild our institutions into something that makes sense to the new generations coming in. How can we teach our children, how can we teach our younger generation that really it is worthwhile to give a vote of confidence to candidates, because there are candidates that will come somewhere along the way, like Jimmy Carter did, and make an important difference in our lives and promote human rights and teach us a lesson that brings together human rights and democracy so closely that it really all comes together. And this, I think, is the big legacy and the big message that we take away at the OAS. I work in access to rights, and I work very closely with the DECO team who works in the area of democracy. And you cannot separate one from the other. And this is, I think, for me, the biggest takeaway of all. At the OAS, all of the areas of the General Secretariat work to promote and to consolidate democracy. That is in our DNA. It is the best option, in our view, to ensure peace, security, and development in our region. And we understand the importance of protecting electoral observation mechanisms and electoral observers, because that's another very important element. Electoral observers are human rights defenders at the core. They go on the ground before elections, during elections. They face great challenges. They continue to face a lot of misunderstanding as to what their role is. And it is part of all of our jobs to educate our communities, our countries, on what it is that they do. And ultimately, electoral observation is an accompaniment to the electoral process. Electoral observation is there to strengthen institutions, to work together with member states, to ensure that whatever is being all of the efforts that are being put in by such member states, by political parties, by all of the stakeholders, can continue to evolve into stronger institutions, into a stronger collective experience of what democracy is. And I think, ultimately, for us being here and sharing this space and being able to reflect on the legacy of President Carter, understanding his role in working together with the OAS and other institutions in the Declaration of Principles for International Election Observation with such a strong component focused on human rights is really a way to mark what the future can look like, where we need to go back. We need to understand the principal element of his legacy and bring that back into what are the challenges that we are facing today, and we have mentioned some of them. Just as Jimmy Carter's legacy is marked by his support for free, fair, inclusive, and credible elections in the hemisphere, so too have OAS missions consistently anchored the work of the OAS in promoting and encouraging democracy and human rights in the region. I think there's a lot to say, but, I know that a lot has already been said, and probably we can all benefit from a good discussion, so I will finish there, and then we can perhaps go into some
5: questions. Thank you very much. points. We have about five minutes left, and so let me take the same approach that, that I did last time. I'll, I'll pose a couple of questions, and feel free to respond to either or both in this case. But um, you know, I think this is a particularly important question. Now, given the the much wider range of of very important economic actors that are present in the hemisphere in Latin America, and indeed across the global South, and 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 you know globally for that matter, with very different views of human rights and and governance, um, how? Did the Carter administration strike a balance between pursuing accountability for human rights abuses and maintaining strong diplomatic relations? And what what lessons can be drawn from from that approach to inform current efforts? Obviously, we're in a very different moment uh, um, as concerns partnerships, trade-based, and otherwise in the region. Uh, but are, is there anything that we can draw from from um, President Carter's particular approach to to doing just that? And then, as a second question, uh, perhaps you know. A, a, Unless we can find another, uh, you know, Carter, esque figure to emerge, and, and, and you know, with the, with the same qualities that so many have described, you know, here uh, today, um, absent that possibility, um, you know, what are our opportunities? So this, this was mentioned by some of you, and indeed in the previous panel, but for advancing inclusive democracies, and then perhaps beyond that. What what are we doing wrong? What missteps, perhaps, are, have you identified in, in our current efforts to to promote um, human rights uh, within the region, um, whether on a country specific basis or, or more regionally? And I'll leave it at that. And why don't we go in this direction this time? So, uh, Madam Carmen, it should hopefully be on. Okay,
12: <laughs> yeah, perfect, thank you. I think I don't like to um, look back to criticize, I like to go forward, and I think that there are substantial changes in what human rights work will, or can look like going forward. I think from our experience in the OAS, and particularly in our secretariat, which is fairly new, we have seen a great will from member states to build their own path towards an understanding and incorporation of efforts in human rights into the work that we do. That is an evolution, the standards are there, and the work that the Inter-American Human Rights System does is vital because it keeps progressing, it keeps moving the bar so that we can challenge ourselves to be better every time, but As we are able to sit back with member states and find where they are and work together with them, I connect this a little bit to, because of the atmosphere that that we are in, again, the legacy of President Carter in in terms of listening, understanding, and the principle of a dialogue that brings member states closer to reflecting on what is their drive towards more democratic institutions, to more human rights, and our logo is more rights for more people. But it is important to have that space so that member states can really look in and reflect, and I think that was, for me, one of the big, I unfortunately have not had the, the opportunity or the privilege of meeting President Carter, but in reading and hearing his views, that to me is very clear Promoting a dialogue that starts with active listening, understanding, and putting yourself in the other person's shoes, is also a great takeaway we can provide to member states in supporting them in the work in human rights. So I think that going forward, that type of relationship working together and collaboration in both democratic institutions as well as human rights can be a great tool and can be a great opportunity to promote more of a culture of human rights because that needs to go all the way from society to, um, to politicians, to leaders, and, and, and throughout um, society.
5: Thank you, Jenny?
0: Very simply, one word, engagement. On top of active listening, President Carter is someone who believed in engaging with, that I can think of the the dictators that he has dealt with, finding the personal approach, trying to reach someone. So, engagement, information, and attempting to find that simple, simple common ground on which you can begin to build a relationship.
5: Vice President.
11: Yeah, undoubtedly, Uh, nations have interests. But those interests, pursuing those interests, especially in in a multipolar world as we have today, have to be based on principles. And those principles, you cannot move them around uh, in order to pursue those interests. And I think that that is one of the lessons that President Carter leaves us. Uh, on diplomacy and on the pursuit of the interests, not only of the United States, but also all the countries that adhere to uh, these principles. And what we've seen, especially in Latin America, is as we let democracies flourish, prosperity took on uh, in many other countries, Unfortunately today, although uh, governments are being elected democratically, some of them then turn around and start tweaking uh, the rule of law, and liberties, freedom, etc., that generate once again that, um, that need to, uh, again, focus on democratic institutions uh, on a permanent basis. So uh, I think that not only the legacy of Carter uh, in this regard is relevant today, but there is a need for that kind of leadership indeed at this time.
5: Well, that's a perfect way to close out this panel. Please, please join me in thanking our our excellent panelists. The panelists will exit this way, and as I understand it, Dr. Lincoln will will close out the session with some final remarks. Thank you all so very much.
0: And thank you, Margaret, for managing this the panels and this information flow. Thank you all for being here. Again, thank you to USIP for hosting us. I also want to mention a very special person from the OAS Library, Rocio Suarez, has worked very, very diligently to put together an exhibition showing the legacy of President Carter in the Americas. We are privileged to have some of that on display out here at USIP. And on that note, I would just remind everyone that the reason we are celebrating the recognition of President Carter's legacy in the Americas is because he's a representative. His lifelong dedication to improving the lives of people, to struggling to find peace where peace is difficult, and never, never shying away from the difficult challenges gives us all inspiration to go forward after this panel and thank you Keith for hosting us and I hope to see you out here in the atrium. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts.